Would you believe that when the first documented female serial killer in the United States confessed to multiple murders, it didn't make the headlines? What monumental event kept her story from the newspapers all over the country? Find out now on this episode of Top Fold. Welcome to Top Fold, a podcast about all the news that would have been. I'm your host, Luke Hefley. Here at Top Fold, we explore monumental events that didn't make the top story only because that spot was already taken. At first, authorities couldn't put the pieces together. Richard Charles Mallory had gone missing. His car found days later, then his body two weeks after that. He had been shot several times. A few months later, David Andrew Spears suffered a similar fate. His car missing, his body, riddled with six bullet holes, was found 13 days later. Initially, the Florida police thought these were robberies gone bad. After the third victim was found just five days later, shot nine times, the police now believed the presumed robber they were looking for was a serial killer. In the next five months, four more men, along with their vehicle stolen, would randomly be robbed and murdered. Florida and the entire southeastern part of the United States were on high alert, searching for the woman the law believed was killing men she didn't know. Many television broadcasts and newspapers had headlines about who this could be and where she might attack next. After chasing down multiple leads, the police believed the killer was Eileen Warnos, but she was nowhere to be found. You couldn't mistake Eileen Warnos for the gentle flower type. Known to everyone as Lee, she was rough, hung out in bars, hitchhiked up and down Florida's highways, and yes, she was a prostitute. Not the big city, pretty woman, call girl type. She was a truck stop hooker. That Warnos had suffered a horrible childhood isn't disputed. She never met her father, who was in prison when she was born. Her mother abandoned her at four, and her father committed suicide while behind bars when she was just 13. At 14, she was raped and became pregnant, giving up the baby for adoption. She became a prostitute at 15 and hitchhiked all over the country, gaining a criminal rap sheet along the way. Could she have committed these murders? If so, why only men, in cold blood and with no remorse? Seven weeks after the discovery of Walter Antonio's body, police arrested Eileen Warnos near Daytona Beach at a biker bar called The Last Resort. She spent days behind bars being interviewed by the police, but gave up nothing about the murders. They were even more convinced she was the culprit, but couldn't prove it. They were worried because her arrest was only for an unrelated outstanding warrant, and she might make bail. If released, she could be on the run forever. They found her former lover, Tyra Moore, a woman she had met in a bar years earlier, and with the offer of full immunity, Moore admitted that she had known what Warnos had done. She made multiple calls under police presence to get Warnos to admit that she had killed the men. Moore told her that unless Warnos confessed, she would also be arrested. Warnos didn't want that, so she summoned a detective to give her side of the story. And what a story it was. Altogether, she murdered seven men. A true serial killer. Warnos was the first documented female serial killer in the United States and one of the worst in the world. These killings were different from most murderers committed by women. Unlike the usual patterns followed by women killers like poisoning or having a prior relationship with the victims, these were in the open 
at point-blank range with a gun, and she didn't know the victims before the kill. She confessed to murdering all seven men, even though Peter Seam's body was never located. In great detail, she described how she shot each of them, how many times her bullets had penetrated their bodies, and what the crime scenes looked like. Many details that only the serial killer would have known. Given these shocking details and Warno's lack of remorse, the detectives taking the confession couldn't believe what they were hearing. Although at the time of her arrest, Warno's claimed her crimes were committed in self-defense, years later, in a televised jailhouse confession, she admitted it had all been to rob the men and to make sure there were no witnesses. None of the men had tried to sexually assault her. Make no mistake, some had picked her up because of her profession, but not all of them. The truth was that after killing the first victim during bad weather, she waited until Florida's rainy season and killed six more. She wanted to look helpless and purposely stood in the rain waiting for the gathering storm to strike. You would think the confession of the first documented female serial killer in the United States would have been huge news. It wasn't. Even in Florida, the state where all the murders happened, it didn't make the lead story. It wasn't in the headlines of the national newspapers, and it took two days for it to make it to page 16 of the New York Times. What could have made the story of the first female serial killer who had waited on a storm to strike her victims relegated far from the front pages, if even reported on at all? Nothing less than a different storm, one that held not only the entire nation's attention, but the world's. This wasn't your typical storm, and it wasn't even in America. Televisions all over the country were tuned in to the night skies over 7,000 miles away from the Florida coastline watching a different force, one by the name of Operation Desert Storm. On January 16, 1991, at 7 p.m. Eastern Time, 3 a.m. January 17th local time, everyone was witnessing the news that the United States had officially entered the Gulf War. For the next 48 hours and beyond, Americans watched full coverage on CNN and other national networks learning about Scud missiles, stealth bombers, F-16s, and all things Iraq. So how did this happen? In August of 1990, Saddam Hussein and his army invaded the nation of Kuwait. At the time, they were the fourth largest army in the world, consisting of 955,000 soldiers and 650,000 paramilitary forces. For the next five months, multiple United Nations Security Council resolutions condemning the Kuwait invasion were continually ignored by the Iraqi leader. America and its allies started preparing for war. Eventually, the U.N. passed Resolution 678, which declared that Iraq had until January 15, 1991, to withdraw from Kuwait and empowered states to use all necessary means if they didn't. This was the Gulf War's legal authorization. The buildup had been intense, and for weeks, night after night, the evening news had shown the mighty force of the United States just waiting for the command to strike. Six U.S. aircraft carriers were stationed in the Gulf, thousands of airplanes, and over 750,000 U.S. coalition forces were in place in Saudi Arabia in what had previously been called Desert Shield. One full day after the deadline had passed, the United States realized Saddam Hussein wasn't leaving and more than likely 
would invade other countries if not stopped, so Operation Desert Storm commenced. Familiar faces like Tom Brokaw, Peter Jennings, and Dan Rather led the news coverage well into the night. Because CNN was the only 24-hour news channel at the time, they instantly became the go-to network as the world was introduced to Wolf Blitzer and Bernard Shaw. Two hours after Desert Storm began, President George Bush addressed the nation. He acknowledged all of the Allied nations, there were 39, reiterated the reasons for going in, and steadfastly declared the U.S. and her allies would have complete and total victory. America was also introduced to four-star General Norman Schwarzkopf, accurately nicknamed Stormin' Norman. The next day, he did what he called the mother of all news conferences. The general showed maps of the buildup of ships and planes, and over the next 57 minutes, answered every question, even adding humor. It was just what America needed at this time. This was war. The first in two decades. And now, America again had a real-life hero with Schwarzkopf. As far as war goes, the first night was a huge success. While video showed the night sky lit up by Iraqi tracer bullets, America displayed its superpower with laser-guided missiles, Apache helicopters, stealth bombers, and fighter jets. Allied casualties were extremely low, and some of the pilots who were shot down and captured were freed by American forces weeks later. Coverage of the war eclipsed Eileen Warnos's confession, and her story was still nowhere to be found. Instead of journalists tracing Warnos's steps, and mapping out locations where the murders took place. They were explaining how tracer bullets worked and showing maps of Iraq and where Saddam Hussein's military power was being crushed. Back home, patriotism rose to an all-time high. Americans immediately went out and donated blood, so much so, it almost overwhelmed local blood banks across the nation. For 42 days, coalition forces bombarded Iraq with one of the most intensive strikes in military history. Over 100,000 flights dropped over 88,000 tons of bombs and missiles, destroying Iraqi's air force, anti-aircraft facilities, command centers, and military targets, including Scud missile launchers, munition facilities, and naval forces. The smart bombs took out nuclear and chemical facilities, bridges, and railroad crossings, all seen on our TVs, safely back in the United States. Some say this is where the 24-hour news cycle took off. Day after day, Americans were mesmerized by videos of bombings, aftermath, and retired generals standing in front of huge maps of the Middle East, giving their opinions and expertise. On February 24th, American ground troops went in. Finding hardly any true resistance, they made their way from Kuwait to Baghdad, over 400 miles, in a matter of days. The U.S. forces destroyed 42 out of Iraqi's 50 Army divisions, with only 125 American troops being killed. On February 28th, just 100 hours after the ground campaign started, President Bush called an end to the fighting. America had liberated Kuwait, saved Israel from being wiped off the face of the earth, and crippled Iraqi's military in the process. The president said it was now time to come home. Victory parades sprang up over the entire country. Almost every town had a parade for their soldiers coming home. Many Vietnam veterans also participated in these parades. On June 8, 1991, less than five months after the start of Desert Storm, Washington, D.C. held one of the largest parades in the country titled the National Victory Celebration. 
the triumphant stealth bombers, Apache helicopters, and F-16 fighter jets flew over the 200,000 in attendance. And of course, Storm and Norman Schwarzkopf headed the parade. President Bush came out of the stands and met the general at the front of the line. And after greeting other soldiers, they walked back to the presidential box to witness over 8,000 soldiers march along Constitution Avenue. In the summer of 1991, while Warnos was behind bars in Florida, flags were flying from New York to L.A. The next year, Warnos was found guilty and given the death sentence. She served on death row for over a decade until October 9, 2002, when she was executed by lethal injection. Liz Randell of the Orlando Weekly wrote, In retrospect, Eileen's life itself seemed like a gathering storm. Now it's past. Warnos's story made headlines many years later when Charlize Theron won an Oscar for portraying her in the movie Monster. The movie declared that it was based upon a true story. However, it took great liberties to lessen the pure evil that Warnos admitted had motivated her. But on January 16, 1991, instead of a confession from the first female serial killer making headlines, everyone was watching the greatest of all storms, Desert Storm. For the first time, a war broadcast live in America's living rooms from coast to coast. And there you have it, all the news that would have been. Thank you for joining us this week on Top Fold. Check us out on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram at Top Fold Podcast. And subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen to your favorite podcast. All my sources and research can be found at topfold.buzzsprout.com. There, along with other things that bring history to life. I'd like to thank David Wagler for the music. And if you like the show, please rate us and give us a review. Or simply tell a friend. That would be great. So until next time, there you have it. All the news that would have been. <laughs>